Let's pray. Lord, again, we, we come to you and thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us and continue to speak to us through it. And so I ask that your spirit, he would be here. He would go before me, that he would bring to life the living word of God, that you would apply it to our hearts, that you would convict us where we need conviction, encourage us where we need encouragement, and lay straight the path for us to walk. So in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. That was a cheery reading. Uh-huh. <laughs> now chapter 9 uh, really is, these first 12 verses really are kind of a, a pivot point uh, in this book. I've been saying to you for the last couple of weeks, chapters 7, 8, and really these first 12 verses of 9 kind of form a unit uh, together as they look at death and wisdom from several different angles. Uh, So we've seen that death is to be viewed as a teacher, that we cannot ignore it, that if you want to live well in a broken world, you need to factor in death. We've also seen that because death exists, it it has limitations or places limitations upon wisdom. Wisdom is good. Wisdom is something you should pursue. But even wisdom cannot overcome death. And so we are called repeatedly throughout this book to receive the good gifts of God in a world where death marks everything. And chapter 9, though, also as it wraps up 7 through 9, it starts to shift. And you notice that in the first verse of this, this book, it starts, or this chapter, it starts to shift as Solomon is now coming to the end of his book. He's now summarizing uh, everything that has come before. And like any good preacher or teacher, it's going to take him a bit of time to summarize it. And, and land. It's going to take them four chapters out of 12 here to wrap this all up and put a bow on it uh, for us. And it gives us, as he repeats some of the same things um, we, should, we have seen again and again, he's going to have us yet again consider death and how it manifests itself uh, throughout this world and throughout this life. And he's hitting these same points for us over and over again, largely because we need it to be told to us over and over again, I can say, I can say with some honesty uh, that my dad told me a lot of things repeatedly growing up, and it wasn't until I was out of the home that I'm like, yeah, my dad was right about a lot of those things, and he had to tell me them over and over and over again. And now I have kids just like me, and I'm telling them things over and over again because it takes a while to sink into our heads and into our hearts. It takes a while for those things to take root. And so while death is our teacher, we cannot escape the fact, and we see it really here in this chapter, that it is the great equalizer, it consumes everything, and it is our great enemy. It is an evil. It is something that needs to be overcome. And if you think back to chapters 1 and 2, as Solomon was trying to find gain and trying to overcome death, he couldn't. And so now, as he gets to the end of this journey, he's kind of wrestling with, well, I can't overcome death. So how do, we, how do we think about this? How do we think about living in a life where death and all of its friends kind of ruin everything? And Solomon, in his customary way, kind of gives us two, two main points here, two main points of summary from this book of the problems we've been dealing with. And the first one is that, death. Death and its pervasive influence. It impacts everybody. No one gets to escape it. And the second point of summary here for him, is the uncontrollable nature of life. 
that life eludes our, our control. And after he considers these two things, he then, well, in the middle of those two things, really, he gives us the interim solution he's been giving to us again and again throughout this book. Receive God's gifts and enjoy them. So after we cover those three things, I want to take a step back here and say, why that? Why that solution? Right? That solution that can sometimes feel so not Christian. Right? Enjoy the good gifts that God has given you. Enjoy them. Take joy in your spouse, in food, and in life. I want to take a step back and see that in light of Christ and in light of the whole picture of Scripture. But let's deal with the first sucker punch that Solomon gives us again. Death and its inevitability. The chief enemy of man, your chief enemy and my chief enemy, is death. 1 Corinthians 15 that we read from at the beginning of the service. The final enemy to be overthrown will be death itself by Christ. How do we deal with it? Well, here's Solomon in verses 1-6 through again. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is to love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. Forever they have no more share and all that is done under the sun. So Solomon says here, all of this I laid up in my heart. Transition sentence. All these things I've been talking about here for these first eight chapters, I've laid up in my heart, and I'm going to start to put a bow on it for all of you. I'm going to start to wrap this all up so that you might see it. And he's storing this up in his heart. The one thing he cannot avoid is this, that he doesn't know what comes next, whether love or hate. And that what he does know that comes is death. He doesn't know if he's going to succeed today or tomorrow. He doesn't know if he's going to fail today or tomorrow. But he does know that he's going to die. And yet we often uh, tend to assume the, assume the exact opposite. That we will control what happens tomorrow and we will not think about death at all. We think that we can gain in this life if we just do things the right way or if we exert enough control over our situation or other individuals, then we will get the outcome that we want. And Solomon says that's not the way the world works. Only God knows what awaits you and me tomorrow. And the one thing we can be sure of is death. As the old saying goes, there are only two things guaranteed in life, death and taxes. There's really not a whole lot of difference between the two, if you ask me. We make plans, thinking our lives will be filled with love, 
thinking as you grow up, I'm going to meet that perfect someone. We're going to have a great marriage. We're going to have great and perfect kids. And then I'm really going to feel fulfilled and satisfied in my life. And we will live, as Disney says, happily ever after. But that's simply something you don't know. You hope that it will happen, but you don't know. Spouses sometimes die unexpectedly. Very eligible individuals sometimes don't get married. Marriages sometimes fall apart. Things like adultery happen. And nobody on their wedding day thinks that's where they're going. And yet it happens. But this you can count on, Solomon says. You can't count on those things going according to plan. But you can count on that you will die. Something we should think of during Holy Week. To be born is to be living under a death sentence. It is to have a date fixed that none of us know where God says, this is your last day. That the wages of sin really are death. And none of us can escape it. And so the heart of this book is the vanity of frustration of life in a world where death and all of its friends rob us of gain, rob us of life, and rob us of meaning. And what makes it more shocking is that this death happens to everybody. We're all equal, and we're born with nothing, and we all go into a hole in the ground. He makes this plain. You're rich or you're poor, you die. You're righteous or you're wicked, you die. You're beautiful or you're ugly, you die. You're smart or you're simple, you will die. If you're a wise or a fool, you will die. If you're an honest man or a liar, you will die. If you are powerful and influential or a nobody, you will die. If you're a high-class individual or a deplorable, you will die. The believer and the unbeliever, the religious and the unreligious alike, will die. You offer sacrifices or you don't to God, and you will still die. And that is the problem at the center of the entire universe. That behind our death sentence is our sin. That we have rebelled against the fountain of life. We have rebelled against the Creator God. And our rebellion takes center stage, Solomon says. The hearts of the children are man of full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. So here's a rosy picture. Again, our hearts are full of evil. And this evil manifests itself in madness. In us behaving as if we are crazy. We don't like to think about it. But I've said it before. I'll I'll tell you it again and again. God created reality. God is the source of reality. He sustains reality. Sin is rebellion against the source of reality. Sin, that means, is a rebellion against reality itself. The more you sin, the crazier you get. Why does our society deny basic truths? As simple as a man is a man and a woman is a woman. Because they've gone insane. Sin makes you crazy. And you can look out there and say, yeah, that's bad. Brothers and sisters, the more you sin, the crazier you get. The more you give in to sin, the more you will justify it. And you will lose touch with the fountain of life himself, God. And this is exactly why our culture's obsession, the gospel that is preached to you and me every day, the worship of the self, the you do you, follow your own heart, do whatever you think is right, 
Message is so destructive. The world says, you do that. Whatever feels good to you, you do. The Bible says, in your heart is bound up evil and madness. Does that sound like a great path to go down? I've got evil and madness bound up in my heart. Let's go that way. It's death. And this sin, evil, and madness cultivate itself or culminates in the grave. And so Solomon commends life to us. He says it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. doesn't matter how great you are. When you're dead, you lose all of that stuff. It is better to be an insignificant and living lion because a dead man is a dead man. And he can do nothing about it. And so the first punch that Solomon throws here in summary is death. It's coming for us all, and its friends are sin, chaos, evil, and madness. The second summary punch that he throws is in verses 11 and 12. The uncontrollable nature of life. He laments the fact that we can't change this and we can't make things better. He says, again, I saw under the sun. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise. Nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. And like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. You should hear echoes here of the early refrain in the book of chasing the wind. Or as I said, better translated, shepherding the wind. Trying to control the wind. As you try to grasp it, it slips through your fingers here. We desperately want to exert that type of control in life, but we can't. We desperately want to pretend like we're God, that we're sovereign over everything, but we're not. And Solomon reminds us of this by telling us the race is not always won by the fastest. The fight is not always won by the strongest. Wisdom does not guarantee success in this life. Neither does knowledge. To this, or to all, a thing that appears to be chance happens. Many a person thought they had a surefire investment or a surefire bet that they could place. This team will never lose. And they lose their fortune on it. It's time and chance happens to them all. My old, my old boss used to say, sports um, predictions is a fool's business. Because as much as you want to think at the beginning of a season, you can predict which teams will be where, nobody ever gets it right. They all fill out their March Madness brackets and like nobody gets it right all the way. Like companies offer millions of dollars if you can get a perfect bracket. Why? Because no one gets it. Time and chance happen to them all. There are variables that we simply cannot account for. In fact, we often find it entertaining when the underdog wins. When the Cinderella story happens, we're all so excited because everybody thought this was going to happen and actually that happened instead. This is the life of being a Vikings fan. <laughs> 15 and 1 and Gary Anderson hasn't missed a kick in years. And wide left. Vikings lose. Sorry, I'm still bitter. <laughs> We like to pretend that our strength, our smarts, our wisdom, and our work will be the primary determining factor in life. 
But if we've learned anything in this book, it should be that it's not. Ecclesiastes 3. There's a time and a season in life. And that time and that season in life is appointed and directed by God Himself. Not you and not me. And this one, I fear, may actually upset us more than the reality of death. Because we can push death out of our mind. We can, we can say, well, I don't have to think about that. I've got years, even though you don't know. You think, i got years. I don't need to think about that yet. We live this part every day. Pretending that we can control everything. Pretending that we are successes because of what we have done and that our failures are always somebody else's fault. My successes are mine. My failures belong to anybody but me. And we like to pretend then that we are God. And so we try to make the uncertain things, I think this is what Solomon's really getting at, we try to make the uncertain things in life certain while ignoring the one certainty and pretending that it's abnormal, death. We can make, well, I can make all of these things certain while this thing's abnormal. Everything appears to be controlled by chance. The strong do not always win. And Solomon says, I laid all this to heart. So the first sucker punch, certainty of death. Second, the uncertainty of life in general. So Solomon gives his solution. Again, you've been walking through me or walking through with me on this for eight, nine weeks now. It's the same solution he gives again and again. Enjoy your life. Verses 7 through 10. How should we live in light of these things? You should enjoy whatever God has given to you. Go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. Remember, that word vain means breath. The breath of your life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Now we can mistake this saying from Solomon to simply be eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. But what Solomon is saying here is actually very different than that. When people in the world say that, it is as if they are throwing up their hands saying, there's nothing beyond this life. All there is, is eating and drinking and being merry. So therefore, get as much of it as you can before you die, because then that's it. That's actually not what Solomon is saying here at all. He says you should eat and drink and be merry, because there is more than the vanity of this life. You should eat and drink and be merry, because God has given you these things. That there's something beyond the things themselves. It is God who invented good tasting food. It is God who invented marriage. It is God who has given you this portion in your life. And so you are meant to enjoy them as things that point to God. This world is now subjected to futility and sin. And so the original goodness is tainted of God's creation. And we have a tendency to take the good things of creation and turn them into God replacements. But we cannot throw out the goodness of God as expressed in his creation. I think this is why Solomon repoints, or 
repaints this picture for us again and again because we tend to go in the one of the two directions. We either replace God with the item or we get rid of the item and ignore God's goodness in it. And that second option feels very holy, but is actually not. Solomon says, God has given you this as your lot and he approves of it. You cannot be holier than God. You rejecting what God approves does not make you better than him. God is not a cosmic killjoy. He's not someone who doesn't want you to have a good time. But he wants you to have a good time in his approved way. So Solomon breaks this down. Let me break this down this section really quickly. He says, first, go eat your food with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, even a thankful heart. Praise God for the joys of your food and drink and let them become something that points you to him. Second, he says, put on nice clothes and take care of yourself. Spent all this time in those first couple verses and it's like, man, Solomon, that's kind of depressing. Maybe I should just go live in a hole in the ground and wait to die. But the solution's the other direction. It says, put on nice clothes and take care of yourself. In biblical times when people were mourning, they would put on sackcloth and cover themselves in ashes to show that they were mourning, that they were lamenting, and there were proper times in life to do that. And yet... Solomon says, put on white clothes. Let your clothes always be white. Dress nice. Take care of yourself. And put oil on your head. Why, why oil on your head? Well, oil was a protective agent against the sun and a nourishing age, agent. Says, Take basic care of yourself. Present yourself as somebody who's actually living in this world. And this presents us with a bit of a quandary. right? Because there's certainly a way uh, to dress nicely and to care about yourself, that becomes both prideful and sinful and full of vanity. To show yourself off. Look at how nice I look. But conversely, there's also a way to not care about such things that is sinful. In other words, God has given you a body. That body is good. And you are meant to steward it well. It is not wrong when the occasion comes to dress nicely. It's not wrong to take care of your body, to exercise and to nourish your body in a right and righteous way, but it is wrong to become utterly consumed with your looks and your physical health. There's the balance between the two. And so we have to have that balance. Our world tends to go again in one of the two directions. Body doesn't matter, or my body is the only thing that matters, and I spend all of my time uh, taking Instagram pictures so I get likes so other people say how good I look. I don't do that. I don't actually do it, but some people do. Third, he says, enjoy your spouse. Enjoy your husband. Enjoy your wife. Note, this is not a call to find ultimate meaning in your spouse. This is not a call that you say to your husband or to your wife that you need to fit all of these lists of desires that I have so that my life can be enjoyable. But rather, it is to enjoy your husband or your wife as a good gift from God. A gift that he gives to lessen the vanity of your life. Our marriages would be so much better if we view our spouse primarily as a gift. And not as someone who is going to fully complete me and solve all of my problems. They're just as much of a sinner as you are. They may not be living up to that, but I can guarantee you that you're not living up to it either. Instead, 
God gives you a spouse as a gift to be enjoyed. So husbands, enjoy your wives. Wives, enjoy your husbands. Because there will come a time in life, most likely, where one of you will be left without the other one. And you will miss them dearly at that point. And you will wish, I've seen it happen for many, an old man or woman, wish for one more day with your spouse. Enjoy them. Fourth, know that God has given this to you as your portion. Whatever you have in your life, the clothes you wear, the car you drive, your house, your spouse, your children, the air in your lungs, comes directly from the hand of God as a gift. This is your appointed portion in life. And receive it with joy and gratefulness because fifth, God approves of it. If God approves of it, He means this is good. God says you enjoying food is good. Enjoying your spouse is good. Do not turn your nose up on what God calls good. And sixth, work with all your might. Look at death and you look at chance happens to everything. The strong don't always win. The smart don't always get what they want. Maybe I just shouldn't try and see if I get lucky. No. He says in verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. The temptation when looking at the book of Ecclesiastes might be to just give in to fatalism. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. I'm just going to sit here and wait and see. But again, Solomon always goes in the direction we don't think he's going to go. Work hard, he says. Be present where you are. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. One of our great temptations of our day, I know I struggle with it myself, is to be present wherever you are. I have a supercomputer in my pocket that can distract me in a million different ways except of being the one place I actually am with my wife, with my kids, or wherever I find myself. Wherever you find yourself, be there with all of your might and work as the Lord has commanded you to work. So those are the three points we find in this text. Now I want to take, take a step back really briefly here and talk about this in light of what we're going to celebrate this week. The hope of the resurrection. Easter Sunday next week. To consider these truths in light of the grand story of Scripture. And I can only do this at about a 10,000 miles in the air kind of overview. But why, why this constant enjoyment of creation throughout Ecclesiastes? Why this despair with death and then the solution there? So I want to start here in Genesis 1 and work very, very quickly to show you the goodness of creation and how it, it's not just found here in Ecclesiastes. What is Solomon doing here? He's pulling this out of the grand story of Scripture and he's applying it to life. So it starts with this. God created the world. He said it was very good. He placed man in the garden to work it and to enjoy it and to even go out into the rest of the world and to make it more like the garden. And he gave man and woman a feast. He said, you can eat from any of these trees but one. And I guarantee you the, the fruit from those trees tastes better than anything you have tasted in this life. He says, eat of any of these trees but one. And it was very good. And in this, the created Adam and Eve tasted the goodness of God through his very good creation. 
And yet man fell into sin through eating in rebellion. Through worshiping the creation instead of the Creator. And trying to become more like God than He was meant to be. But that is not the end. After God removes man from the garden, He calls Israel to be His people. It strikes me about Scripture. There's a lot in the Scripture about food. All over the place. God established for Israel long food laws. Don't eat that. But then He also established, on the other hand, feasts. You guys are going to have these feasts all the time and they're going to be celebrations and you are going to praise me through feasting throughout the year. And as Israel falls away into sin, God through the prophets, especially in Isaiah 55, He says there will come a time where God will say, come and eat and drink for free. Come and eat and drink with no cost and you will be truly satisfied as he prophesies Isaiah about the coming of the Son of Man, the Messiah. And so Christ enters the scene. And what is the first sign that Jesus does? It's at a wedding feast in Cana. And what does he do? He makes the best tasting wine anybody has ever tasted. It's a celebratory event. And the people rejoiced in his provision and enjoyed it. And this was pointing to what his kingdom would be like. How did the opponents of Jesus attack him? They attacked the Son of Man because he came eating and drinking. He was having too good of a time uh, with his disciples. So Christ was hated because he enjoyed the goodness of God's creation. And as the bridegroom, it was a time to celebrate as he was there. And Christ, as we do every week, then establishes a meal for us to remember what he has done and to look forward to a greater meal. He himself says, I will not partake of this again until I eat it anew in the kingdom of God. The risen Lord tells his disciples that the food laws of the Old Testament are no more. He commends eating freely. Eat now freely and enjoy it because it's not the actual food That is bad. And so Paul, in many of his letters, commends eating freely and he condemns those who say you can't eat certain foods as teaching the doctrine of demons. 1 Timothy 4. He commands in 1 Corinthians that whether we eat or drink, we do all to the glory of God. That yes, your eating and your enjoying of food glorifies God. And if we fast forward to the end of this age, as it shifts into the new kingdom, What do you see in Revelation? A wedding feast. Where all the nations come to the table and they feast and they enjoy the goodness of God at the wedding of the Lamb. And as heaven descends on earth, access is then granted again to the trees now of life and the river of life where you eat and drink for free better tasting food than you've ever tasted here. And so God's people will feast in Zion with restored hearts and with joys unsurpassed, as the psalmist says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, Satan wants you to either make those pleasures into God or to call those pleasures bad. But again, God is the source of all good things. Do not turn up your nose at him. And all the wickedness and the evil that we wrestle with Christ is putting to death 
through his death and resurrection so that he will bring in that new kingdom. And so that is what I want you to remember this Holy Week. That Christ has overthrown the main foil to our satisfaction, to our gain. That he put to death, death by dying. And that death and vanity are losing because Christ reigns at the right hand of the Father. And so, like Christ, we feast. We lament when the time comes for lamenting. We rejoice that Christ died in our place, that Christ rose again, and that Christ is bringing that kingdom again. And that all of our hope, all of the possibility of overcoming the vanity and the death that can so bog us down is found in one man, Christ Jesus. And that he went to that cross in our place and that he rose again on the third day. And I look forward to next Sunday celebrating the inbreaking of the new creation with you. That Christ is risen and that Christ is coming again. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that death is not the final word. We thank you that vanity is not all that this life is. For that in Christ we have a new creation breaking into the old. That in Christ we have hope of that kingdom, a sure foundation knowing that you are making and remaking all things in his image. Lord, we ask that you would come quickly. That our faith would turn to sight. That we would see the Lord Jesus returning. And that we would shout with joy that the kingdom has come. And that we will be with you forevermore. It's in your name we pray. Amen.